The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Starting on Sunday night, June the 24th, we're going to start having a temporary Sunday evening class at 6, where are you, 6.30? 6. 6, 6 o'clock. And Ike is going to teach about a 10-week series on how to study the Bible. So you can come and learn how to study the Bible and go from about 6 to 7.30, about an hour and a half long uh, class. So we'll go uh, 10 or 12 weeks on that. That will be just a one-shot thing. Long term, we're going to pull in another Sunday night uh, next September, I mean next uh, spring rather, and I'm going to teach a class here on uh, Monday nights, Monday, yeah, probably Monday night, on uh, history of doctrine. So just some things to look forward to. That will be part of the curriculum for Chafer Seminary with the streaming video now. We can do some things like that where I can fill in a gap here or there for some courses at Chafer without leaving home. And everybody here can benefit from it. So that will be a lot of fun. And then I have had two or three requests lately from people who are interested in getting baptized. So if you are interested in getting baptized, let me know, and we will have a baptismal service. Where, you might ask? Well, I talked with my good friend David Dunn over at Grace Bible Church, and they have a baptistry, and we are more than welcome to have like a Sunday afternoon uh, service over there and use their baptistry. Before we get started this evening, let's bow our heads together for a word of prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer as we get started, and then uh, before we get started, make sure you're in fellowship, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we have this opportunity to come together to study your word this evening to once again realize that you have a plan that extends from the beginning of creation to the end of creation to the new heavens and new earth, that you are the God who declares the end from the beginning. This sets you apart from all other uh, human concepts of deity, for you are in control of history and can accurately foretell the future. This is one of the great evidences we have of the truthfulness and veracity of your word. And as we continue our study in Genesis chapter 49 of Jacob's prophecy regarding the future of each of the tribes of Israel, we pray that we might uh, be stimulated in our own spiritual life as we read about your work in history in these different tribes of Israel. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Genesis chapter 49, and tonight we're going to study about Lucky, Happy, and the Wrestler. Genesis chapter 49. Now, up to this point, we have been looking at the prophecy related to the tribe of Dan. And the prophecy related to the tribe of Dan began in verse 16 and extends 
It's mostly 16 and 17. And then in verse 18, there is a, a pause, a statement made by Jacob. This is not part of the prophecy related to Dan. It is a pause, for it is a personal exclamation as he has gone through God's plan for each of these tribes. And now he exclaims, I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. Now, the (coughs) word that we have translated for salvation is the Hebrew verb, yasha, which is where you get the noun, Yeshua, which forms the basis for the name of both Joshua in the Old Testament, Jesus in the New Testament. It's the same, same name in Hebrew. And it has to do more often than not with physical deliverance. As I've said again and again, and most of you are, are well taught and trained by now to realize that most of the time, In the Bible, when we see that English word saved or salvation, it doesn't always talk about justification, salvation. It's not always talking about that time when we move from spiritual death to spiritual life, that time when we go from from, uh, being um, what we'd call unsaved to being saved, that time when we gain the imputed righteousness of Christ when we're declared to be justified and we're regenerated. In American evangelical idiom, that word saved has become uh, so uh, associated with that event that when you go back into the, the Bible and you start reading passages like this, you'd say, hmm, if you just took this out of context, you'd say, well, wait a minute. Jacob, I thought Jacob was saved. He's still waiting for salvation? Wait a minute, why ain't he saved? Or if you were thinking about it in a in the sense of his ultimate redemption, salvation, his re- realization of his promotion to heaven at the time of physical death, related to what we'd call the third stage of salvation, phase one being justification, phase two being the spiritual life saved from the uh, power of sin, and then phase three, say, from the presence of sin. We might take it that way, and Jacob is on his deathbed here just about, and so he's just making an exclamation about his uh, a spiritual event in terms of his being promoted absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord. But that's not what's going on here. He's t- he, we have to locate this within the overall flow of what's happening in the book of Genesis. And more often than not, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, this word group, whether we're talking about Yasha in the Old Testament or Sozo in the New Testament, this word group has to do with physical deliverance, deliverance from some calamity or adversity. And so what he is focusing on here is the ultimate deliverance of his sons and his descendants from their uh, being out of the land in Egypt and back into the land that God promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to himself. So as he has meditated upon the future of of his sons and the tribes and what will take place in the future, now he says, I have waited... For your deliverance, we translate this. I have waited for your deliverance, 
O Lord. And this is the kind of idea that we see over in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, as we talk about the various uh, Old Testament saints that are mentioned here, we learn that uh, the focus of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was on the promise that God uh, had given them. And in verse 9 of Hebrews 11, 9, by faith he dwelt, this is talking about Abraham, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. They never saw that promise fulfilled in their lifetime. They never owned land, owned real estate in the promised land other than the graves for Sarah and for uh, Rebecca and for Rachel, that gravesite, the cave of Machpelah is the only place where they had any uh, owned real estate. They were awaiting the promise. And so this is a statement of Jacob's faith and trust in God that eventually this would be fulfilled. And this is going to be played out at the end of this pro- uh, prophetic section. In verse 29, he's going to charge his sons to bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephraim the Hittite. What is he saying? This is a tremendous example of faith rest drill. He is recognizing that he has to trust God. Even at the point of dying, which is a test in all of our lives, we are to trust in the promise of God. And so Jacob is trusting in that promise. And if you remember... Once you have, as we've gone through Genesis, in Genesis 12, we have the original statement of the promise of God that he is going to give the land to the the seed of Abraham. Then that is uh, reconfirmed, promises about the land in Genesis chapter 13. In Genesis chapter 15, we have a reconfirmation of the covenant. Genesis chapter 17, there's a reconfirmation. Genesis chapter 18, Genesis chapter uh, 21, or 22, excuse me, with... uh, with Isaac, there's reconfirmation of the promise. There's a confirmation of the promise. And with Isaac and with Jacob, again and again and again, a promise God is going to give them the land. But back there in Genesis chapter 15, God had not only promised Abraham the land, God had also promised Abraham that you will be out of the land for about 400 years, but I will bring you back to the land. That is the singular promise that the Jews had to hold on to from the time that Jacob and the 70 with him left the land to come down to Egypt until they go back to the land under Moses. So for the next 400 years, they've got, they've got the general promises of the Abrahamic covenant, but they only have one specific promise to hold on to. And that's what they're holding on to. That's what they're looking for when you get into Exodus. And by the way, Ike is going to begin a study this summer on the book of Exodus. When I leave to go to uh, Israel the first part of, of, of um, <clears throat> June, Ike is going to start a study. He's just going to go from, from one night to the next consecutively, Sunday, Tuesday, Thursday, Sunday, Tuesday, Thursday, uh, and then that way he will, whenever I'm gone or if I can't be 
be here, then he's just going to continue that study of Exodus all the way through. And the beginning of Exodus, the one thing that the Jews are holding on to in slavery and all of the oppression under the Pharaoh of the oppression is that one promise, and they know, they can count. It's been almost 400 years. It's time for a deliverer. And so that is what Jacob is focusing on here. He's waiting for your deliverance, O Lord. Now in verse 19, we shift to the next son, and this is Gad. We have three short prophecies related to three of the tribes. Gad in verse 19, Asher in verse 20, and Naphtali in verse 21. The basic meaning of the word Gad has to do with fortune or luck. So we'll call him lucky. Asher means happy, so he's happy. And Naphtali refers to the one who is wrestling. So that's why we have lucky, happy, and the wrestler. Genesis 49:19. As for Gad, raiders shall raid him, but he will raid at their heels. Now, if you read this in Hebrew, you would start laughing and chuckling because this verse is a pun, but you don't get it. You just completely miss it in the English. I inserted the translation from the New American Standard because it's about the only translation in English that tries to pull in the the pun that you see here. But since gad isn't the same word as raid in English, we miss that. I'll get into that in a minute. As for gad, raiders shall raid him, but he will raid at their heels. Bread from Asher shall be rich. And he shall yield royal dainties. Naphtali is a deer let loose. He uses beautiful words. Now, these are somewhat cryptic prophecies. But yet there is uh, some definite trends laid out here for these tribes and their future and how they are going to be used in the plan of God. Now, these three sons are sons of the handmaids Bilhah and Zilpah. Gad is the first one we're going to look at. Gad is the first point under Gad is that he is the seventh son of Jacob, the seventh to be born. He is the first son born by Zilpah, who was Leah's maid and one of Jacob's concubines. Now, there's some debate over just exactly what the word Gad means. There are those who claim that it has the idea of a troop or a band of raiders because there's a, um, it's a, it's really a homonym or a homophone between Gad and the root verb that's translated in this passage as raiders or raid, which we'll see in just a minute. But it also has uh, has the meaning as a as a distinct word of being lucky or being fortunate. I've got on the on the screen here for you the translation of the New King James, and the King James follows this as well in the first verse, and then the second is an example of the New American Standard. And the as you see in the first one, they it translated in the King, New King James. Then Leah said, "A troop comes." And in the New American Standard, then Leah said, how fortunate, how lucky. Gee, what a difference. 
But see, the difference is that in the Hebrew you have two consonants, G and D. And you have one word from that root that means lucky or fortunate. And you have another word from that same two consonant root that uh, refers to a troop or a group of marauders. That's where the pun comes in here because what happens with Jacob now, he's going to, he's going to, uh, have a little play on words based on, on his name. Now, as I have, uh, done some research on this, looking at the Hebrew Aramaic lexicon, which is the most, uh, recent scholarly Hebrew, uh, lexicon available to us, they do not even list the troop or marauder uh, group as a meaning for this particular noun, for the name. They only list the idea of luck or fortune, which is what really fits the context of Genesis 30, verse 11, uh, better. As we look at that particular instance, uh, it doesn't say much. Bill Zilpah gives birth to... To Gad, and it is Leah, as we've seen, it is always either the uh, Leah or Rachel, the one who has the handmaid, who names the baby and who makes the announcement at his birth. And Leah has been uh, unable to conceive, and so she has offered her handmaid Zilpah, and so the context really supports the idea of God's grace or God's fortune. God providing for, for her at that time. So I think that in Genesis 30:11, the root idea of the name Gad fits the concept of luck or fortune. Ah, finally, I have another child to offer uh, Jacob. Remember, she is constantly trying to put herself in a position of favor to him to gain his love. She's always sort of the second-class wife because even though she was the one married first, she knows that it was under uh, <coughs> suspicious circumstances and she was uh, slipped in there, as it were, under the cover of darkness and that the one he really loves is Rachel. So she's always trying to uh, curry favor by having uh, good uh male children for Jacob, but it really doesn't uh, cause him to love her anymore. So the idea in Gad's name is this idea of good fortune or luck. Now in verse 19 of Genesis 49, Jacob says, As for Gad, raiders shall raid him, but he will raid at their heels. Now the word for that's translated raiders there is the Hebrew uh, noun, Gadud. You see, it's G, D, and then there's a, a, a vowel, and then another D. So you see the play on words. As for God, he will gadad. So you, that's, the, that's the pun in the Hebrew. And gadud here refers to a band, a troop, a marauding band, a raiding party, or a group that makes inroads into enemy territory. They're sort of a... a uh, referring to an advanced ranger unit, I guess, going behind enemy lines or a, a band of marauders. That's the idea. So the New American Standard, I think, did a fair job trying to find uh, a group of words with the same root that could be used to translate this idea and at least try to con- convey a little bit of the pun 
that is being used here. See, that's how God the Holy Spirit works and draws attention to what he's trying to communicate is through word plays. They didn't have boldface type or underlining uh, things of that. They couldn't uh, highlight the words, do things like that. So they brought it out through the use of, of word plays or through uh, syntax, uh, things like that. So as for Gad, raiders shall raid him. And the, the same verb is used twice now at the end of this verse. In this clause, raiders shall raid him. We have a calimperfect of the verb with a third masculine singular suffix indicating raiders shall raid him. So he's going to be attacked. That's the essence of that prophecy is that Gad is going to be in a, in a position of military vulnerability, and that's because of his location, the location of his inheritance in the Transjordan. But in contrast, even though initially he is the one who's going to come under assault, he will raid at their heels. He is going to gain the victory, and he's going to become tough militarily. He's going to have a strong military presence on the, uh, on the eastern border across the Jordan, and it will be through Gad that many of the foreign armies invade. They come from the north, they come from the east, and so the position of Gad is to protect them, protect uh, Israel's flank. The next, we're not told a whole lot about Gad. There's not a whole lot that's brought out in the scriptures. Our third point, the first point was that Gad was the seventh son, the first son of Zilpah. The second point is that there is a pun here on his name emphasizing the, the future uh, position where he would be in a position of military vulnerability, but eventually he would have victory. The third point is that at the time of the Exodus and the conquest, Gad numbered 25,600 at the first census. The Exodus generation numbered 25,600 males over the age of 20. At the end of the wilderness wanderings, they were numbered at 25,000. 500, so they only lost 100. That shows some blessing from God on the Gadites because they're, they're not involved in some of those horrendous rebellions that occurred during the, uh, during the wilderness wanderings. So they numbered 25,600 when they came out of Egypt and 25,500 as they prepared to go into the land. Fourth point, Numbers 32 relates how Gad and Reuben... Uh, sought to gain land in the Transjordan. Here's our map of Israel. Always remember this, that in the, in the west, on your left, you're going to have the Mediterranean. On your right, you're going to have the Jordan River. In the north, you have the Sea of Galilee. The Jordan River runs south into the Dead Sea. If you get that, you've got... You've got the geography of Israel down. You have the Mediterranean on the left, the Jordan River on the right, Dead Sea of Galilee in the north, and the Dead Sea in the south. And that covers the, um, the Promised Land. Now, Gad is in the Transjordan. You have the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and half of the tribe of Manasseh across the Jordan. That's called Transjordan. Jordan, the, word tra- the prefix trans indicates a cross. 
the directions are stated from the perspective of being in the land itself, from being in Jerusalem, so that the land itself is referred to as Cisjordan, C-I-S, Cisjordan. That's on, on this side of the Jordan, and across the Jordan is the other side where Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh were. In Numbers 32, Gad and Reuben come to Moses and say, you know, we have a lot of herds. We have sheep and goats and cattle, and this land over here on this side of the Jordan is just uh, tremendous real estate for pasturing our herds and, and our real estate. We, we want this land. We don't want to uh, keep going and go into the land. There may have been an element of fear or anxiety there about the conquering the land, but that really doesn't come out. Moses conditioned their request on their going to battle with their brothers. So just because you want the land on this side of the Jordan doesn't let you off the hook. You can have this land on the condition that you cross the Jordan with the other tribes and that you do battle with them, and once the land is conquered, then we will distribute this this land to you. So they uh, went together, fought with the rest of the tribes, and when Joshua comes to an end, they are given this piece of real estate. Gad initially was first beaten down, had a difficult time uh, taking the land, but... Eventually, they did establish themselves uh, across the Jordan. Moses, before he entered into the land, excuse me, before he died, before the nation entered into the land, also prophesied about Gad's military strength. In Deuteronomy 33, 20 and 21, of Gad, he said, Blessed is he who enlarges Gad. He dwells as a lion, and he tears the arm and crown of his head. See, the emphasis there is on Gad's military prowess, on his strength. Uh, verse 21, he provided the first part for himself because the lawgiver's portion was reserved there. It came with the heads of the people. He administered the justice of the Lord and his judgments with Israel. So he's there. He is blessing Gad. There is uh, spiritual prosperity there because they have a basis for justice and integrity. And so Gad is going to become blessed and have military strength over their enemies. So that prophecy of Moses in Deuteronomy 33 dovetails with Jacob's prophecy in Genesis uh, 49. So the sixth point is that these prophecies together... These prophecies fit together and demonstrate that Gad will be harassed over a period of time by bands of hostile enemies, but they will eventually repel those advances, and they will stand as a bulwark against those who are trying to attack Israel from the east. When you go through the uh, geography here, let me back up to the map, the geography here, you'll notice that this area just to the east is called Gilead. Gilead often becomes a synonym for Gad. Gad is located on the Transjordan from just north of the, of the Dead Sea up to the area of, of Manasseh, which is closer to uh, the Sea of Galilee. So they're sort of in the central, in the central area. So they're often referred to as 
uh, Gileadites because of the geographical area uh, where they are located. Now, during the period of the judges, they were oppressed by the Philistines. The Philistines are located down here on the south uh, western border in the area of the modern uh, current Gaza Strip. You heard today about the fact that Hamas fired some some rockets at the Fatah headquarters. So there's a little bit of infighting going on among the uh, Palestinians down there in the Gaza Strip. But this is the same area where the Philistines were during the time of the judges. So apparently they had the Philistines at some point during the, t- during the period of the judges gained control, dominated uh, Judah in the south, all the way across to the tribe of Gad in the Transjordan. So that we read in Judges 10.8, And that year they, that is the Philistines, vexed and oppressed the children of Israel for 18 years, all the children of Israel who were on the other side of the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. You can cross-reference that to Jeremiah 49.1 in terms of the geographical uh, nomenclature. So there... They are a bulwark on the eastern uh, border of of, uh, Israel. Seventh point, the most famous Gadite of the Old Testament was a judge from the period of the judges, a man by the name of Jair who judged Israel for 22 years. We know very little about him. We're told about him in three verses, Judges 10, 3 through 5. Also, it's possible that Jephthah, the man who sacrificed his daughter as a burnt offering, Jephthah was a Gileadite, according to Judges 11.1, so he may also have been a Gadite. According to Jewish tradition, not, it's not biblically certain, but according to Jewish tradition, Elijah the prophet was also from the tribe of Gad. So point number eight, what we see in terms of a spiritual lesson from Gad is that Gad was initially defeated, but they eventually persevered. It's a lesson in endurance, a lesson in perseverance, that Gad did not allow previous defeats to hold him back. This is the same principle for every believer. We often fail in the spiritual life, but we can't give up. We can't focus on our failures. We have to focus on the grace of God. This is why we have the principle of confession. 1 John 1, 9, not as a license to sin, but it gives us the freedom to go forward and not to be anchored and mired down by past failures. Point number nine in the book, in 1 Chronicles the military perseverance of Gad is reiterated. First Chronicles fifteen, or First Chronicles five, eighteen, and nineteen. The sons of Reuben, the Gadites, and the half tribe of Manasseh had forty-four thousand seven hundred and sixty valiant men, men able to bear shield and sword, to shoot with the bow, and skillful in war, who went to war, and they made war with the Hagrites. Uh, Jeter, Nefish, and Nodab. So these were various tribal groups on that eastern flank of Israel that were <clears throat> constantly harassing the Transjordan tribes. So we come to, back to Genesis 49:19. As for Gad, raiders shall raid him, but he will raid at their heels. Perseverance and endurance was a key factor in the 
tribe of Gad as they protected Israel. Now, the Gadites were eventually destroyed by the invasions of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. They lost their territorial control. And then, of course, when uh, the uh, Assyrians came in in 722, this is when Gad lost most of its hold on their territory in the Transjordan. Then we come to our next tribe, verse 20, the tribe of Asher. Bread from Asher shall be rich, and he shall yield royal dainties. Now, this is completely different characteristic for this tribe. The Gadites are a very strong military tribe. They're herdsmen, they're outdoorsmen, and in the sense that they're they're out there with the sheep, they're out there with the goats and the cattle. There are a lot of dangerous animals over there in their uh, tribal areas, mountain lions and bears, other uh, aggressive animals. And so they were a tough, uh, hardy warrior tribe. On the other side, here we have the chefs. Here we have the farmers. Here we have the great cooks of Israel. And that's what comes out when you look at this Hebrew text. Bread from Asher shall be rich. This is Lechem, the Hebrew word for bread, where we get the part of the name for the house of bread, Bethlehem, Beit Lechem. And this is uh, Lechem bread. Bread from Asher shall be rich. And the uh, noun that's used there for rich is Shamin. Uh, Shamein, it means fat, rich, plentiful, or robust. Now, we're going to look at a cognate of this word, shemen. This is shamen with an A-M-E-N. The vowels are different. But we'll get to another noun which relates to olive oil in just a minute. So just remember that, shamen and shemen. They, they, they're cognates. So uh, that's why olive oil, the term for olive oil, uh, became a a figurative word, a metaphor for that which was prosperous, that which was uh, fat or rich or plentiful. So this word indicates the bread from Asher shall be rich. It indicates the fact that, that in their farming as they produce grains and as they cook, their produce is going to be uh, it's, it's going to be exceptional. They are going to, their tribal allotment is going to provide the bread basket for the nation. And that is true when we, you look at where their uh, tribal allotment uh, was. So well, what do we learn about Asher? Well, first of all, Asher was the eighth of Jacob's sons, the second one born to Zilpah, so he is a full brother to Gad. In Genesis chapter 30, verse 13, Leah said, I am happy, uh, for the daughters will call me blessed. So she called his name Asher. Asher is a Hebrew word meaning happy. It's not the same as the word for best, uh, blessed, which is uh, from uh, Barak. So he, he, Leah says, I am happy. So first we have lucky, and we, now we have happy. For The daughters will call me blessed, Genesis 30, Verse 13, the second point, the name Asher or happy foreshadows the prosperity of the tribe. This tribe will be one of the most prosperous of the tribes of Israel historically. They have agricultural prosperity and provide for the people. 
Third point, Asher numbered 41,500 coming out of Egypt. Okay, as they come out of the slavery, they're 41,500. But when they've gone through 40 years in the wilderness, and the nation's gone through a lot of divine discipline, and a number of the tribes have lost people and shrunk, as Asher gets ready to go into the land, their numbers have gone from 41,500 to 53,400. So they've increased about 12,000. So this shows that God blessed them during the wilderness uh, wanderings. Fourth point, Moses also uh, blesses... Uh, leave that up there. Moses also blesses Asher in Deuteronomy 33:24. And of Asher, he said, Asher is most blessed of sons. Let him be favored. Let him be favored by his brothers. And let him dip his foot in oil. Now, this is one of those interesting little little verses where you get some well-meaning but poorly taught, biblically, Christian oilmen out of West Texas come along and say, hmm, what we need to do is go find all over there in Asher, so we'll just start digging for all over there. And that's exactly what happened. And they, he's sunk oil wells all around Mount Carmel and hadn't found a thing because Nobody, he didn't pay attention to what the Hebrew was talking about here. The Hebrew isn't talking about petroleum oil. It's talking about olive oil. And this is where we have the word uh, shemen, which is a figurative, it means fat or oil. It's figuratively used of richness and plenty. So when you have this figure, he'll dip his foot in oil, it indicates that he is going to be prospered. He is going to uh, have great food. Richness in plain. Most simply, it's used of food relating to feasts of good, rich food in many places in the Old Testament. Now, when we look at the second clause of the Genesis 49 verse, bread from Asher shall be rich. That's that same idea, rich, shaman, uh, the, he'll dip his foot in oil. It emphasizes the prosperity of Asher. The second phrase, he shall yield royal dainties. And if you translate that from the Hebrew, it actually, I think a good translation, it will, he, will, it will, he will give the delights of kings. I think the New American Standard or New King James trans, uh, captures that, he shall yield royal dainties. Dainties doesn't communicate a whole lot. This is talking about the quality of food that's going to be produced by the Asherites. Uh, <clears throat> in our contemporary culture, Twenty from 18th, 19th, 20th century Western civilization, we look to the French for fine food. But in Israel, in the ancient world, you look to the Asherites. This is where the chefs were produced, and they produced the best food for the king's table. They produced the, the delicacies that were prized in Israel. Today, in the area of Asher, which if you look on the map, the area that is circled, just to the, just to the south of that circle, right at the southern edge of that, we have the uh, Carmel Ridge. 
let me see if uh, it runs from right up here. This is where Haifa is, just where this little tip is. And you can see this brown shaded area headed to the south uh, from the, from the uh, northwest to southeast. That's the Carmel Ridge. And Mount Carmel is located uh, right up in uh, this particular area here. And then down here you have Megiddo, and this area just to the west of there is the plain of Esdralon. So Asher's territory runs from just the northern edge of Mount Carmel. That's the boundary point up to the north, and much of this area, of course, today goes up into Lebanon. But historically they were in mostly in this, in this area here, and it's an area that even today is filled with uh, olive groves, and olive trees. So this is the emphasis of the prophecy related to related to to Asher. Now we come to Naphtali in Genesis 49:21. We make our shift from uh, the prosperity of Asher to Naphtali. One other point. Uh, one last point on Asher. God richly blessed Asher, and they were, they were the recipients of God's grace. And the lesson there is that whenever we are recipients of God's grace, we're not to hoard what he gives us for ourselves, but we are to share that with others. And this was the emphasis was with Asher. Because of God's blessing on Asher, the produce of of Asher fed the rest of the tribes. They were they were like the Kansas and Nebraska. They were the breadbasket uh, of Israel. Okay, Naphtali, Genesis forty nine twenty twenty one. Naphtali is a deer let loose or a hind. It refers to a female deer. Uh, Naphtali is a hind let loose. He uses beautiful words. Well, what's this connection between the hind and and the beautiful word, just what's going on here. Well, often we find in Scripture that the hind is used as a picture of that which is fleet and sure of foot. Psalm 18.33, the psalmist writes, He makes my feet like the feet of deer and sets me on my high places. The prophecy is that Naphtali is going to be quick and sure. There's something about Naphtali that is going to speak of speediness, that which is uh, quick. In Jewish tradition, and we don't know this from the Scripture, the son of Naphtali was a swift runner. Legend has it that when, when the brothers went down to Egypt and they discovered that Joseph was alive, they, they, they had taken some others with him, not just themselves, and that the son of Naphtali was with him, and he's the one who ran all the way from Egypt to Israel to carry the word back to Jacob that Joseph was still alive. Makes a nice legend. The second part of this uh, particular phrase says that he uses beautiful words. The Hebrew word, therefore, Beauty is the word uh, safer, which has to do with goodness and beauty. And uh, the word for words is amer, meaning uh, word or speech or sayings. He uses beautiful sayings or has good sayings. So we have to try to figure out what this means. Okay, let's just stop a minute, go back and think, talk about Naphtali. 
Naphtali, third point, Naphtali was the fifth son of Jacob, the second born to Bilhah. So remember, we start with Gad. Gad is the seventh. Then we went to Asher. Asher was the eighth. And now we're backing up. And Naphtali was the fifth son, the second born to Bilhah, who was the handmaid of Rachel. He is a full brother to Dan. So these are not taken in chronological order. At his birth, Rachel exclaimed, Many wrestlings have I wrestled. We see this in Genesis 30, verses 7 and 8. And Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With great wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister, and indeed I have prevailed. See, there's that inner dynamic that's going on with, with a household that has has two wives. You know, it, it always strikes me when I get into these passages dealing with where there is polygamy in the Old Testament, you always run into people who raise the question, why uh, do we have God allowing polygamy to take place in the Old Testament? Well, God allowed polygamy, and he allowed adultery, and he allowed murder, and he allowed idolatry. He allowed all kinds of things to happen in the Old Testament. That doesn't mean that God... Uh, justified it or validated it, even though, in the, and then people will go to the Mosaic Law and they'll say, well, there's laws in the Mosaic Law that regulated how uh, the, the multiple wives were to be treated or how the concubine was to be treated. Yes, that's because God was concerned with justice, that if there weren't laws that uh, regulated the 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 care for the concubine, then they would just be tossed aside like like old rubbish on the garbage heap when the man was done with him. So God is showing His love and His care for people. This isn't for the, for the second wife or for the concubine. It isn't an authorization of polygamy. In fact, every time you see polygamy. In the Old Testament, there are negative consequences. Abraham did not practice polygamy. He had a second wife after Sarah died. Uh, using the practice of, a, of the concubine with Hagar wasn't the same as having a second wife. A concubine was had a specific class. There, it was a legally protected status, but it wasn't the same as, as a wife. Now, God doesn't validate that, didn't authorize that. That was the problem that we have, which creates the part of the problem between the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Isaac today, which we continue to see in the Middle East with the problems in the Middle East. So you have uh, Isaac doesn't practice polygamy. Jacob does only because he's tricked into it. So we don't, you can't go to the Old Testament and say, see, all these people are practicing polygamy. And God specifically prohibited the Jewish kings from multiplying wives to themselves like all the pagans, but they did it anyway, and they were condemned for it. So, you, I mean, this is just fatuous to go to the Old Testament and try to prove that God supported uh, polygamy in the Old Testament. Anyway, we see this, this ongoing conflict between Rachel and Leah and, and their ongoing jealousy and battle for Jacob's favor, and, and that's what Rachel's referring to here. With great wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister, and indeed I have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali from a Hebrew root that means to fall or to throw down. So that's why I titled this lesson uh, <clears throat> Lucky, Happy, and the Wrestler. Naphtali is the wrestler. 
indicating that wrestling match between Rachel and Leah. Fourth point, when the tribe of Naphtali left Egypt at the Exodus, there were 53,400 of them, but when they entered into or got ready to enter into the promised land, there were only 45,400 of them, so they lost some 8,000 in the wilderness. That tells you something about the spiritual character of the tribe. They were involved in some of the harsher rebellions and disciplines that took place in, in, as they went through the wilderness. But nevertheless, point number five, Moses blessed Naphtali uh, as, when he blessed him from God in Deuteronomy 33.23. And of Naphtali, he said, oh, Naphtali satisfied with favor. And that word translated favor is a word for grace. So it shows a grace orientation of the tribe, generally speaking. Oh, Naphtali satisfied with grace and full of the blessing of the Lord possess the west and the south. So here we have the uh, <clears throat> the tribe of Naphtali. Really, it's neither west nor south. Uh, that's not what Moses is talking about, that they would be to the south or the west, but they would be up in the... the actually, their tribal allotment was in the north, and it's in the area north of the Sea of Galilee. I want you to notice as you look at this map, you see the the body of water there that is the Sea of Galilee. Located on this map is the Sea of Kinnereth. Naphtali is located to the north. This is the area of, uh, on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee where you have Capernaum and you have other areas where Jesus frequently went in his ministry. Just to the south of the tribal allotment of, of uh, Naphtali, on the east, uh, excuse me, on the west side of Galilee is the tribal allotment of Zebulun. There is a close connection between these two tribes. When they respond to a military threat, they respond together. There's a close affiliation and alliance between these two, when these two tribes. Now, as under point number six, when Naphtali goes to drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath. They instead opt for coexistence with the Canaanites. And they're up there in the area of Hatzor. Hatzor is located, well, there we go, right there. Hatzor was one of the major cities of the Canaanites. Uh, in the ancient world. In fact, they're going to produce a, gen, uh, a leader by the name of um, uh, Sisera, a general by the name of Sisera. And uh, uh, the, the Canaanite leader is Sisera, and his general is Jabin, and they're going to attack the Jews during the period of the judges and be repelled by an army led by Deborah and Barak. And this is important because, under point number seven, Barak is from the tribe of Naphtali, Barak is from the tribe of Naphtali, and he comes down. Let's see if I can get one of my... There we go. The battle is going to take place down here in the valley of Armageddon down near uh, Mount Tabor. But Barak is going to come from Naphtali. Uh, 
Deborah is carrying on her ministry down in this this particular area, and this huge battle takes place. And Zebulun and Naphtali are described in Judges 4:10 and in 5:18 as coming very rapidly to the call of battle, and they are going to establish themselves uh, as the as the anchor point of the military that defeats uh, this. Uh, King of Hatzor. Now, in point number eight, a later prophecy in the Old Testament in Isaiah also links these two tribes together. And this passage is going to be quoted in Matthew 4.16. I think this goes to understanding that root prophecy related to uh, Natalie, uh, Naphtali using, uh, using beautiful words. In Isaiah 9, 1, we read, Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Afterward, more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan and Galilee of the Gentiles. This is talking about the historic judgment of the Assyrians and later the Babylonians on the northern kingdom and on Zebulun and Naphtali. In verse 2, we read, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. Now that verse is picked up and quoted in Matthew 4.16 in reference to Jesus' ministry up in that <coughs> northern area of Israel. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. So the, that is talking about the illumination coming from the presence of the Messiah during the first advent when Jesus Christ was ministering on the, on the earth. I think this is uh, an application of the prophecy that Naphtali is going to use beautiful words because this area of Naphtali and Zebulun is the area where over half of the disciples came from. And what did they do? They hastily, after, <coughs> after Pentecost, they hastily took the gospel throughout the world. They're the ones who, within a generation, had taken the gospel to most parts of the known world at that time. Thomas, according to legend, went to uh, India. Uh, others went, to, went took the gospel. Bartholomew took it to Egypt, I believe. Others went to different places. We would be amazed if we knew how far the gospel went in that first generation. And in Romans 10.15 we read, uh, also a quote from the Old Testament, How shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, and this is a quote from the verse I have at the bottom of the screen, Isaiah 52.7, how beautiful, see we have this same kind of terminology related to uh, Naphtali who has beautiful words. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. And that's a quote from Isaiah 52.7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings Good news. So I think there is an application there that it is the tribe of Naphtali in the north that produces several of the disciples who eventually will be those who proclaim the uh, beautiful words, the good words of the gospel, and speedily take it throughout the world. 
that brings us down to the point where we only have two of the sons left to go, Joseph in verses 22 down through 26, and then Benjamin last but not least in verse 27. So we'll come back next time and we'll begin working our way through the prophecy related to Joseph. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to see how your plan has worked itself out over history. And Father, we thank you that we're part of your plan by virtue of our faith in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that we might keep our thinking oriented to you just as Jacob trusted you, trusted in your promise, and just as the Jews trusted in that singular promise for 400 years until you redeemed them, redeemed them. so we too need to trust you on a day-by-day basis. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.